0: Well, I was dressed for work. I was ready to go, but I was, I was waiting on Misty, my wife. It wasn't the first time that I had waited on Misty. It's certainly not been the last time that I've waited on Misty. But I was waiting to go because uh, my wife was nine months pregnant, and she had gotten sick, so sick earlier that day that we had gone to the doctor kind of unexpectedly, got her checked out. She was okay, and we went back home, so I was, just, I was concerned. And she was in the bathroom and had been in there a while, and I was just waiting on her before I left to go to work for the day. So finally, she comes out, and she looks at me, and she says, I think my water just broke. So I get on the phone to Starbucks to call, because we're not sure. Like, where is, is that, what, what happened? And, and so I call, and thankfully, by God's design, like our, our uh, store mom, her name was Lori, picked up. She was in her mid-40s, a couple of kids. was just like the mom of, because most of us who worked there were in her early 20s. She was just the store mom. So we pick up, and I call her. and I was like, Lori, we, Missy and I, we think her water broke. We're not sure I'm supposed to come in uh, for work. I'm not sure what to do. And she cuts me off mid-sentence, and she says, get your wife to the hospital. We'll take care of the store. And she hung up on me. And so we went and we had, uh, we had our first son, Isaiah, 12, about 12 hours after that phone call. And up until this moment, I had thought that having a child would be sort of like, if, if my life was a really good meal, it'd be like adding a really good side dish into the meal. All right? like I've already, the fried chicken's there. The mashed, but this is Indiana Hoosier uh, meal, not a Kansas City meal. Not burn ins that uh, just translate into your own meal: fried chicken, mashed potatoes, and having a child be like mac and cheese, right? The king of all sides, the mac and cheese. Um, And now I realize that's dumb, (laughs) and not just because it's a food analogy, but but having a child is not like adding a side dish into your meal; it's an entirely new meal. That the moment of, of birth was, it was like so obvious that the claims that this little child has on my life are absolute, complete. And that became clear because Misty had vertigo at Isaiah's birth, which meant uh, she really shouldn't get out of bed. She shouldn't hold him and walk with him. So any anytime that he needed to be nursed, all of his diaper changes in the, f- the first several days of his life, that was all me. Because she w- it was not safe for her to get up from bed and to hold him. So then, anytime he woke up and cried, I, that was I was responding to that. Anytime he needed a diaper change, I was responding to that. And so, both of us, right, just the, the early phases of our son's life, his claims on on both of us were absolutes. And so, many of us this morning, and if we're honest, all of us this morning, sort of have the same perspective on Jesus that I have, I had on Isaiah on a, on having a child. That Jesus is like a side dish we add to our life. He's an ornament we add to the tree. And yet Jesus does not have any interest in that role in your life. He's no interest in being on the side and being uh, a part of your life. Right? He's not a side dish that you add. He is the restaurant. He wants to be all of it. And that's something I've been wrestling with really since 2017. I've been wrestling with the reality of Jesus' claims on my own life, much like in 2012 when Isaiah was born, I wrestled with the claims of a child on my life. Because in 2017, I began to meet Chinese Christians, and that was a season of life where they all were very clear that their expectation was that in the next couple of years, significant persecution would begin to come against the church. And all of those expectations have now proven true over the last year in particular. That a pastor that I met and listened to give an hour-long talk on Chinese culture has been in prison for almost a year now. I think of Esther, who read scripture for us, who's one of the kindest teenagers I've ever met. And I hear her read scripture, and when she talks about being put in prison, that's not, that's not hypothetical to her. That's, that's every Sunday morning for her. So this morning we have, we have a sobering text where Jesus is writing to this church in a city called Smyrna. And he says to them, some of you are going to die. Terrible persecution is coming and you need to get ready. And so as we think about that, like that sobering reality, I want to think about, think about three things together. Is if, you're gonna, if we're going to follow Jesus, right? which is what we, we say we're about, if we're going to follow Jesus... It means we will suffer with him, we will die with him, and we will overcome with him. Or we're not following him. And so let's start. Following Jesus means first and foremost, we will suffer with him. So as I mentioned a second ago, we're in the middle of a, a nine-week series just on the first three chapters of Revelation. So those of you who are like, man, I can't wait to get to the weird stuff. We are, we're not getting to the weird stuff. It's not going to happen. Um, but, but what we wanted to focus on was the, the, like these letters that Jesus wrote to this church that was meant to sort of inform how they were to live between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And today's letter is written to a church called Smyrna. And Smyrna, it's a real place. Uh, it's the modern-day city of Izmir in Turkey. So it's a real place and and it was also a place that had been just completely destroyed in the 6th century and about 2 to 300 years later it was completely rebuilt. So it was a, it was a city that had had literally died and had come back to life. And, and in particular, this city was really proud of their worship of the of the Caesar, of the emperor of of Rome. And so what's clear about this the city also is that there's a very heavy Jewish presence in the city and and what What was important about that in that day, if you were Jewish, you sort of had an exemption from worshiping Caesar as God. You didn't have to offer the same sacrifices that all of Rome had to offer. You sort of had some special exemptions, uh, which is why the Jewish people in that day, they didn't have to go and offer sacrifices to Caesar and so that meant in early Christian history, because Christians really saw themselves as Jewish people and continued to attend the synagogue, they just saw themselves as the, the people who worshiped the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Jewish hope. The church just considered themselves Jewish, and, and they sort of were the same place for much of the early church history. But what began to happen was that the Jewish people began to say, These are not Jewish people, they're not Jews, they're, they're something different. And some of the early Christian persecution was because Jewish people began to say, they're not Jewish people, and Christians lost that exemption of worshiping the Caesar. And so just really briefly, that's why you get this really problematic faith synagogue of Satan, which has been used in history by Christians to persecute Jewish people, which is wrong. But what's happening in this moment is the reverse is true. Jewish people are singling out Christians to the Roman authorities for persecution which is why John says, or Jesus actually refers to them as the synagogue of Satanists, because they're doing violence against innocent people. And so what's happening in, in Smyrna is the Jewish people are turning against Christians, turning them over to Rome, and they're saying they're not worshiping Caesar. They're not Jewish. They shouldn't get the exemptions. And so this local city is beginning to turn their sights onto Christians. And so Jesus makes very clear to this church in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. And this phrase, uh, ten days... It's not, a lit, it's not like 10 days, right? It's not like from Monday to next Wednesday or Thursday, however late. It's not that. Uh, it's actually a reference back to the Hebrew Bible to Daniel. And in Daniel, Daniel uh, is, is forced into a, sort of a, a school for worshiping other gods. And they're going to give them food that has been sacrificed to those gods. Daniel doesn't want to eat those, that food. And so he goes to the, sort of the, the, the leaders of the school and he says to them, Hey, listen, I don't want to eat that food. I want to eat a different diet, and so test me for 10 days. I'm going to eat a vegetarian diet. Test me for 10 days, and at the end of that diet, you'll see that, that I'm still a good student. I'm still a faithful member of, of the city, all of those things. So they tested him for 10 days. Day, day, uh, Daniel ate a vegetarian diet, and, and, he, and he came out, and he, they were stronger and healthier than those who had eaten uh, the meat. And that like that is evidence of supernatural... God's supernatural involvement, because the only way you're gonna eat a vegetarian diet for 10 days and look strong at all is if God's supernatural power is on you. Because if I eat vegetarian for 10 days, I probably die, right? This doesn't go well. But Daniel, he passes the test, and Jesus is saying, in a very similar reality, you are you're going to be tested, and you need to, and, and what Daniel essentially was saying is, I don't wanna, I don't wanna be associated with that idolatry. I want to make it clear that, that God is my God. The God of the Bible is my God. And I'm going to eat only what's going to make that clear. And, and Jesus is saying, you and Smyrna are about to enter a similar test. This is, I mean, it's a sobering moment. Imagine that Jesus writes to a church and says, and they're going to read this, this letter in front of one another. And Jesus just explicitly says, some of you are going to die. I mean, imagine, imagine if we got that letter, and this morning I got up and said, listen, I have a letter from Jesus, and he, he wrote, to the angel of the church of the Hyatt Place, some of you won't be here in 10 days. Just imagine what that would do to a congregation. And this is, I said a second ago, in 2017, I was, I was a part of a moment like that, that... Uh, uh, this pastor, I've got a picture of him. I'm not going to say his name or what city he's from for for security reasons, but he spoke to a room of, of Christians in in China, and he basically said, "Listen, there's persecution is coming, prison is coming for the Chinese church." And he's been in prison now for almost a year, separated from his wife. And kids, his church arrested, leaders arrested, or his church harassed, leaders arrested. People have been kicked out of their homes. They've been fired from their jobs for being associated with this church. And one of the things I think that's very different about the American context in church is that it's different from China, is that we, like, Jesus is just sort of a side dish in American culture, right? It, he's something we add on to the reality of our life. Which means we, you know, we keep him at arm's length when he, we don't have time, and he's sort of it's he's there when we need him. He's available to us at all times, but he's not really the central operating principle of our our life. But it, that ultimately doesn't work because Jesus is not available to us in that way. And so, in, in one of the first uh, series or the first sermon in the series, I showed a chart where um, I just showed the, the incredible increase in. People who are no longer attending uh, church, basically, that, that for most of American history, the people who don't go to church is about eight percent or have no religious affiliation is about eight percent. In the last twenty years, that number has gone from eight percent to twenty-three percent of our culture, and and essentially that is is matched in a drop of people who attend church. So you know, essentially fifteen percent of our population in the last few last twenty years basically have stopped attending church. I mean, that's a stunning statistic. Um, and I gave a few reasons for that, but I want to give another reason this morning, which is that, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I heard something frequently as a pastor, which was essentially like, essentially it was like, this kid is acting up and we need to get that kid in church, right? Like church is a place where, the, where good people are and they make you a good person, right? That's essentially what church is, which, you know, there's other things associated with that, but essentially like the church is a good thing, a good place. And I think that is changing. But a few months ago there was a Christian uh, who was up in front of a, a committee in uh, Congress to be confirmed to serve in the government and he had, he had taught Sunday school uh, at, a, at his local church and uh, the committee got a hold of his Sunday school teaching and and one of the te- texts that he taught on was John 14 six where Jesus says, "I'm the way, the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me," which is why Christians sort of traditionally said the only way to be saved is to have faith in Jesus. There's other religions don't save you, only Jesus save you. And so this this Christian was grilled, questioned, and condemned. And one senator uh, in particular said to the the nominee, he said this, he said, I would simply say, Mr. Chairman, that this nominee is really not someone who this country is supposed to be about. And the senator called uh, believing these words from Jesus indefensible. And granted, there was some pushback in the, in the committee, but I, I think the reality is that one of the central sayings of Jesus is no longer something that's is disagreeable to our broader culture, it's it's indefensible. It's something that this country is not supposed to be about. And the church in our moment is having a number of different reactions to this reality. One is just the agreement, and that's why I think some people are leaving the church, as they do see like... I mean, Jesus said some really hard things, and the you know the church can cover over those things with funny videos and games and Xboxes and all. We can cover those things up, but eventually they, those come out. And when you get into college and you realize there's some really offensive things in the Bible and the church never talked about them, never dealt with them. It, listen, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard to deal with that, and so people are just like, yeah, the, Jesus is some things that's offensive. I'm out. Some churches have, have gone just completely with capitulation. They've abandoned orthodoxy. They're straight, Jesus may have said that. We're just not going to teach it or believe it. And that's next week's sermon, so I'm not going to spend any time there. A third response is some Christians are, are beginning to f- try to fight back by trying to grab political power, political victories. And that's not totally wrong. I, mean, I think the church should be people who push for freedom and justice. And yet, when the church attaches itself to a political vision a political party, a political reality, we end up attached to things that damage our witness to Jesus. We end up attached to people whom Jesus would find offensive to his way in life. And so that's not saying don't be engaged politically. I'm not saying that. But political victories for Christians often leave us attached to people that damage the witness of Jesus. I think that's happening right now to the church. So what do we do? And I think the first thing we need to do is learn from the suffering church. I like the way China has responded to their persecution and marginalization is so much healthier and mature, I think, than how Americans, how we are responding to far less pushback on our own beliefs and teachings. And so, the pastor I showed a few minutes ago, he wrote a letter which became famous, uh, and and in it is is sort of his response to. His, He understood he was going to be arrested, so he prepared a statement to be read, to be sent out, once he was arrested. And here's, to me, the key paragraph that I think applies to us as we think about our own moment. He writes, I'm not interested in changing any political or legal institutions in China. I'm not even interested in the question of when the communist regime's policies persecuting the church will change. Regardless of which regime I live under now or in the future, as long as the secular government continues to persecute the church, violating human consciences that belong to God alone, I will continue my faithful disobedience. For the entire commission God has given me is to let more Chinese people know through my actions that the hope of humanity and society is only in the redemption of Christ. In the supernatural, gracious sovereignty of God. I don't care what happens politically, he essentially says. I'm going to bear witness to the way of Jesus. Now that's not a man who's, you know, had some bad social media posts about he's in prison right now. And Chinese Christians continue to to operate in that bold witness. Here are some Chinese Christians uh, doing street evangelism. And I put the girl, I, put, I, I wanted the picture of the girl up front, because how many of us would take our children to street evangelism with the possibility we get arrested? Or here are pastors from this week that are being trained, about 100 of them, uh, to go and preach a go- the gospel in, in a city right now that has intre- increased Chinese pol- uh, police and military presence. They learn how to preach the book of Hebrews this week. They're going to go out and preach the gospel all over China. Or I got an update this morning from uh, our China partnership where a pastor who's been under house arrest, police outside of his apartment, asked if he could have friends over to host them for a meal, people from his church. They told him yes, but then when the friends got there, uh, the police told them no, so the pastor took, uh, took the food out to the sidewalk, and they ate the meal with the police right there in front of them on the sidewalk. As I I think about those stories, I hear those stories and hear the words of Jesus, right? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil's about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Like, following Jesus, it, it costs. And so this morning, what has following Jesus cost you? If you were put in front of a judge, what's the evidence that would be used against you to show this person follows the way of Jesus? Have you caught has it cost you reputation? Does it cost you a friend, friendship, relationship? Has it cost you money? Have you said no to an opportunity you would have otherwise said yes? Is your time, is your calendar radically restructured than the other people we live alongside in our culture because you follow the way of Jesus? The following Jesus means it, it will cost you. So what does it cost you? So first, the so following Jesus means we will suffer with him first. But second, following Jesus means we will, we will die with him. And there's a word uh, that's used in every single uh, letter to uh, the le- the seven churches in Revelation. It's the word over overcome, and it typically comes to the at the at the end of each letter. And so, in verse 11, we have the one who conquers. <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, in, in, in ESV, it's translated conquer. I like overcome a little bit better as a translation. This is the the one who conquers or overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So each letter ends with this word over. Come. And New Testament theologian Richard Bauckham, he would say that's actually, if you want to understand what Revelation is all about, all its confusing images and visions and sayings, really you need to understand what this word overcome means. This is the central word of Revelation. Revelation is ultimately not a book about visions and beasts and weird stuff. It is about how the church overcomes the world. In the Greek word, it's, it's nikao. So let's practice a little bit of Greek here back and forth. Say that with me, nikao. It's the Greek word nikao. And so the the word, it means to conquer. It means victory, uh, to win. It means superiority. It was a word used of winners in the Roman competition and games. When they won, they nikaoed. They were victorious. And so this word is such an image of power and victory that one of the most prominent American companies used that word as the name of their company. You know it. Nike is from the Greek word nakao. All right, just do it. Winning, victory. So, all of those images in your mind. So, how does the church Nike? How does it win? How does it become victorious? Well, the answer comes in Revelation 12. And what you have in Revelation 12 is a battle between Satan and the church. We'll get into Satan a little bit later in the series. So I know I realize there's all sorts of dissonance in our own world today, but essentially, like Revelation, it's a book about uh, it's like any good book, which is about a dragon that gets slayed, right? It's it's you know this is what Harry Potter ultimately is about. Voldemort uh, gets destroyed. It's The Lord of the Rings. It's Sauron gets destroyed. It's the, this is the central climax of Revelation, where the the dragon Satan is defeated by the Church. The Church overcomes the beast, and here's how the Church overcomes. Satan. It's a little bit of an extended section. I want to read it. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. I realize it's weird, but like Harry Potter sold tens of millions of copies, and it's just ripping this story off. So if, it's, if this feels weird to you, like Harry Potter. Verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. They've overcome him. Nakao, same word. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb by Jesus sacrificial death on the cross and by the word of their testimony for they loved their lives for they loved not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice o heavens and you who dwell in them the church conquers satan first by the, the death burial and resurrection of Jesus the blood of the lamb and then by their witness, their testimony, because they were willing to die for Jesus, for they loved their—they loved not their lives even unto death. The church overcomes through death, through faithful witness unto death. And so, question one point one is: What do you? What does Jesus following Jesus cost you? Question two. Point to is what are you going to die for? Because you will die for something. That's not an option. You're gonna die for something, and someday someone's gonna bury you. It might be me, depending on how quick you go or how quick I go. Uh, And it's always clear when you start talking to family what that person lived and ultimately died for. Will Jesus make it into the conversation? Will he be the conversation? And this is in so many different places, that following Jesus is not, it's not mac and cheese to your fried cheese. It is, this is a new reality. And Jesus, he tried to make this clear, like in so many different ways. So in Luke 9, Jesus says this, and about, if you want to follow me, this is what this means. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever... Loses his life or her life for my sake will save it. For what does a profit a person if they gain the whole world but loses their soul? And you might be thinking, like, this sounds really depressing. <laughs> Following Jesus means we die. So, like, all Christians just walk around like, uh, I'm dying for Jesus today. Like, that doesn't sound interesting or good. Or f- but, yeah, like, Revelation 12 you you hear this line right the Christians they love another lives even unto death the next line then is therefore rejoice This daily death is not should not lead Christians to be the, like the saddest most depressing people in the world there's a rejoicing because in dying to Jesus we get we get the world back the defeat of the satan we find our lives we find rich full abundant life there's joy in dying for Jesus there is joy in giving your life Away way for Jesus. And I can say, like, having encountered and spent time with Chinese leaders, they have way more joy than the American church. Despite the sobering reality, they're not naive about what's ahead of them, and yet there's, there's, a, there's a firmness there, a boldness, a joyfulness that I've experienced as I've spoken and, and texting with them even back and forth this week. And the reason for that is because Jesus, Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, he starts by saying, "I am the w- the one with the words of the first and last who died and came to life. You die to Jesus and you get you get your life back it's raised to new life and imagine a church like that was our central reality not a church obsessed with political power or persuasion not obsessed with being cool or relevant not obsessed with being respected in the broader culture but a church that knew like want like at our core what we have is resurrection life at its center at the center of us that nothing we lose is actually really ever taken away from us because we who follow Jesus follow a man who died and came to life Spend your life dying for Jesus. Or in the words of one of my favorite authors, Indy Wilson, his book, Death by Living, lay your life down. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breath is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. So drink your wine. Or if you're Baptist, drink your juice. Laugh from your guts. Burden your moments with thankfulness. Be as empty as you can when the clock winds down. Spend your life. And if time is a river, may you leave awake. What are you dying for? Money, a career, your name, your own personal happiness? Or for the witness of the gospel of Jesus and all of the joy that flows from that? Jesus will have it no other way. He will not be your side dish. He will not be an add-on to your life. He will be your life or he will be nothing. So follow Jesus. We suffer with him. We die with him. And last, and I've hinted toward this, we will overcome with him. And So what is the, what, let's get practical. What, is this, what does this look like? And I want to leave you with, with three thoughts. First, stop making Jesus a part of your life. Right there, there, have been many moments in in uh, preparing for this sermon series where I just had to stop reading, stop studying, and just sit with what I just heard or what I read. And probably the central moment that that happened for me was I was reading a book uh, by a New Testament scholar named Richard Bauckham. So he's like he's a brilliant New Testament theologian, teaches uh, over in, in Europe. He probably weeds, uh, wears tweed jackets all the time, right? It's like he's like probably a stuffy guy. Like let's just be honest, he's a professor. But he wrote this book on Revelation, which was probably the best that I read. And when he starts talking about this word, overcome, conquer, what does it mean? He, He said this, and it just stopped me. He said, if we must translate the call to conquer into literal terms, we could say that it requires every Christian already to accept the martyrdom that faithful witness may incur. He's saying, if you... If you want to follow Jesus, you have to start with the, the reality, I'm willing to die for this. And if you can't say that, you're not, you're not ready to, to overcome with Jesus yet. And historically, the moments Christians have used to, to display this is baptism, where we die into waters and we are raised into new life with Christ. It's a symbol of us saying, I've died. I just I'm dead. And when I came, I'm, I'm now alive. I'm willing to die for this, because I will be raised to new life for, for this. So have you been baptized? We have a baptism coming in three weeks. If you if you have faith in Jesus and you've not been baptized, you need to be. Because that's the symbol moment where we say, I have, I'm dead, I'm willing to die for this, and he will raise me to new to new life. Or maybe. Maybe your question is before that, which is, did you, did you just start going to church to be a good, good kid, right? You're one of the good kids that need a church. You needed to be a good person. And this morning, you're, you're uncomfortable because it's becoming clear to you that Jesus wants far more than that. Actually, Jesus expects far more than what you're giving to him. He wants your whole life. He wants an absolute claim on you. And you've, you've never taken that step. Like, you've never moved into full faith with Jesus. And you just need to be converted first. That may be where you are this morning. Whatever it is, stop making Jesus a part of your life. Make him your life. And if that hits you, let's talk. Reach out to your community group leader. Reach out to a friend. Reach out to someone that you trust who follows the way of Jesus. Stop making Jesus a part of your life. Make him your life. That's first. Secondly is, is we need to learn from the suffering church. And I said this already, and you, listen, you probably are not going to fly to China next week, but what you can do is is, uh, China Partnership provides text updates of prayer requests, um, which are, I think, a really powerful way to learn from them. And so, uh, and and we'll send out this info in other ways, but you can go to their website, chinapartnership.org, and sign up for the email distribution. Or you can text pray for china to 33222. We'll send this out later, but just the the words PRAY, the number 4, China to three three two two two, and all those updates I just shared with you. Well, some of them uh, uh, you you can get. Uh, they'll they'll share with you. And, and as as you receive those updates, for me, it's a it's a constant question: Am I am I willing to suffer? Did I like am I following Jesus the way He calls me to? So learn from the suffering church uh, too. And then thirdly, and finally, win win the crown. Right, Jesus says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown. Which is, right, when you conquer, when you, when you Nike, when you Nikola, like you get a crown because you won. And, and Jesus is saying, come with me, and you will get, get the crown. But one of the most uh, uh, well-read early Christian writings outside of the New Testament was a document called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. In Polycarp, he was killed as an old man. He was 86 years old by the Roman state who grew tired of his commitment to Jesus. So they said, Let's, he's 86, but well, we've got to take him out. And the earliest Christians uh, said that Polycarp was actually a disciple of John who wrote Revelation. And he became a pastor in a local church and eventually rose to being such an important person, he was the, the leader of the entire church in a city called Smyrna. He was the bishop of Smyrna, and he probably heard this letter read when he was a child in that church. And at 86 years old, he was led into the arena, and the, the pro-council, the state power over him, said to Polycarp, if you deny Christ, I will set you free. And Polycarp's reply was, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? So the pro-council upped his threats. He said to Polycarp, I... Have wild animals here, and I will throw you to them if you do not deny Christ. As so Polycarp replied, you threaten me with fire, which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. You must hear Revelation 2 there, can you? The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. That statement, I mean, typically when you tell the state power, bring on whatever you want, they're going to oblige you in that. And they did, and Polycarp was killed. And as he died, his death was so different that the early Christians who wrote this story finished by saying this, that the crowd were amazed at the difference between the unbelievers and the elect. They saw a man killed for his faith, and they were amazed at the difference between those who followed the way of Jesus and those who didn't. And I wonder, church, could the same be said of us? Does the, does the, the broader culture look, at, Ameri- look at, at Christ's community and say, there's something different There. I'm mean, why do that? Like, why give yourself to the way of Jesus? Why die for him? Why give why give up everything for him? And the, the only reason is, is that he went first. He died for you long before he ever asked you to die for him. And yet he, he asks you to die for him. And in even in that, promises to give you your life back, to give you a crown, to have you overcome this dark, broken world that seems bent on persecution and injustice. He says, come with me, we'll overcome all of this. And though you die, you shall be raised to, to life. That's his invitation to us. I hope we take it. Let's pray.